Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, senior tech editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about tech. Because really, there are no embarrassing questions, and we want to help you answer them. It could be about gadgets or apps or the smart home or self-driving cars or whether Kara Swisher will run for president someday. Yes. Okay, that's not tech, but she's got my vote. All right, the good thing. You better twice, vote, vote twice so that we can do fraudulent voting because, you know, that's a thing apparently. So send us your questions. We really do read them all. Find us on Twitter and tweet them to us at, at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. We also have an email address. That's too embarrassed at Recode.net. And friendly reminder, embarrassed has two R's and two S's. And while you're at it, have a listen to our previous episodes, too, which you can find on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. So today we're talking about something that might initially make you ask, what exactly does this have to do with quote-unquote tech? But it does because of the way information is now distributed online and shared on social networks. That's correct, because we're going to talk about the phenomena of fake news. I know you've gotten tired of this term, but it's a really important issue, and it's, it's important as social networks and internet companies really do dominate how news is distributed and read by most citizens. So we want to know how it came to be, whether it's a real thing or a new thing, and it's not, uh, why it became such a huge topic in our new political environment, and most importantly, what you can do to spot fake news and not get duped. That's right. And we've brought in a special guest for this episode, Brian Stelter. Brian is the senior media correspondent for CNN and the host of Reliable Sources on the same network. Prior to CNN, he was a star media reporter for The New York Times. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. So, Brian, um, we've known each other a long time, and, and you've covered media for a long time. And we're going to take questions from our listeners in the latter half. But first, let's talk about this phenomena of fake news. Uh, we know it's not a new thing, but, but what spurred the more recent rise of misinformation, and in some cases, totally bogus articles? Can you give people a primer? It felt to me last fall we saw this uh, real focus on the specific kind of fake news that, that was seen during the campaign. And I would put it into two buckets. You know, there's this profit motive, these people that write made-up stories, really just fiction that they're writing uh, that are intended to get advertising and make a quick buck. And then there's the propaganda version, which is more politically motivated, uh, trying to change the outcome of an election or, or hurt a rival. Uh, and I think we were we became more aware collectively, I think it is an industry in the fall, about these fake sites that were trying to make money off the ads and to some extent aware of the propaganda efforts, although I think the attempts uh, by uh, folks connected to Russia and other countries to create fake stories to hurt Clinton, there wasn't as much awareness of that before Election Day as there was after Election Day. But but I would I would say certainly thanks to the efforts of Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed and to others in the fall in the September, October range, that there was certainly a heightened awareness of these fake, totally made-up sites. Uh, and now, of course, as you said, the term has been uh, sort of retired. It's been exploited. It's been misused by people to, to mean, oh, anything I don't like, anything I disagree with is fake news. Yeah, President the Trump president has now, yeah, the president has now uses it. has now kind of taken over the term. And, and I think Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post is right. We shouldn't be using the term fake news so much anymore. We should let that one go and, and, and use more specific language, like these fictional sites that are trying to make money are creating hoaxes and trying to fool people. Hoax. So mm -hmm. I think we can we can be more descriptive, but the problem is still very real and very there. What are some specific examples uh, for people who are listening? You're talking about the difference between fake news that's complete, utter fiction online versus something that maybe more falls into the bucket of propaganda. What are some specific examples of those two different types of quote unquote fake news? 
Well, I think we saw uh, attempts to create uncertainty about Hillary Clinton's health in the summer and the fall. Uh, some of that was uh, coming from conservative talk radio hosts uh, who were who not propagandists, who were not working for a foreign government. They were just trying to uh, support Donald Trump and raise questions about Clinton. But then next to all of that, next to all of that conservative media conversation about her health, there were also uh, tweets and comments and blog posts and articles from outlets like RT and from some of RT's spinoffs, uh, RT being Russia Today. Uh, you would see efforts uh, by groups of trolls to raise doubts about Clinton's health and to uh, suggest that she was in much dire straits uh, than she actually was. You know, We all remember that video where she nearly collapsed at the 9-11 Ground Zero ceremony. Uh, but for people to take that video and then go 10 steps further, we were seeing these kind of online bands of trolls do that. And, and that certainly did look like efforts by some external out entity. It's hard to say exactly for sure who is behind this stuff. But certainly there was an appearance of a, of a propagandistic campaign to, to undermine her health. And, and then, of course, the profit motives. These are stories saying that the pope has endorsed Trump. You know, those sorts of stories that make people feel good. They want to believe them and want to share them and thus click on them. Uh, I think th- that was more clearly uh, visible during the during the campaign. But there's been more of this idea of gray news. I mean, which I think people, have, like Mark Zuckerberg used the word gray areas. And then, you know, you had Kellyanne Conway astonishingly call things alternative facts, which really was appalling. But and it's something she's used during the interviews. So there's more than just something's just fake. Like Hillary Clinton is not a lizard. I think we can all agree on that, although maybe not we can't. Right. Um, but the Pope the scandal the, was yeah, not and real. Pope, the Pope did not support Trump. Right. So there's some things that are easily provable. Uh, and then there's this idea of alternative facts, which they tried to put around the inaugural, which was very clear the crowds weren't as big, but they tried to pretend that it was. So talk a little bit about that, because that's where you get into real trouble, I think, here. Yeah, I wonder if the term is a spectrum. I wonder if it's best to imagine these stories as being on a spectrum and the totally fictional, made up, just kind of um, ridiculous stories. Those are the easy ones to identify at the far end of the spectrum. Those are the really easy ones to spot and attempt to weed out. And that's what Facebook's focused on and what Google's focused on. The much harder ones are these stories in between, somewhere between real news and and complete BS. And I think that's where the attention needs to be focused now. Uh, Just a very personal example, a story about me that had one paragraph of real quotes that I actually said on TV and then four paragraphs of made up quotes. How is a reader supposed to know where the... Uh, it was basically saying that I had criticized Trump much more aggressively than I actually had. Uh, so it, it, it you know, took an essay and then went wild with it. But I don't know how the reader is supposed to judge where the truth stopped and where the lie began if I myself had to go back and check the transcript. And I'm at least able to know where the transcript is and how to find it. I, these tech companies are right now dealing with the worst of the worst sites, as Facebook has said. But I agree that the the harder story is in the middle, and the middle is where there's going to be more and more growth. I'm curious, Brian, um, how you feel the new administration so far, how the relationship is going with the press. And I realize I'm asking someone who works for a network that President Trump has called out by name, which, by the way, is not a new thing. I should also note, we were just uh, rereading Marie Brenner's story about Donald Trump and one of his uh, earlier marriages in Vanity Fair. And it was an article from 1990. And even in that article, he was specifically sort of lambasting CNN and saying, you know, reporters were writing vicious things about him. So his kind of contentious relationship with the press goes back decades at this point. But how do you feel it is going so far? (sighs) <laughs> long uh, maybe sigh. a roller coaster is the right uh, image here. 
with the loops and the flips and the, the sudden jerkiness and uh, the sense you might throw up. Uh, maybe that's the right image to convey. Uh, certainly, we're seeing an enormous amount of news from the administration. We're seeing the audience hungry for that news. We're seeing viewers coming to the cablers, coming to the web, looking for this information. Uh, but we are seeing the administration uh, continue to try to delegitimize the press. And, and I hate the word delegitimize, even though I use it all the time. The, what, what we mean by that is uh, trying to strip away our authority and our credibility and, and deny that what we're doing is, is valuable and accurate. Is that um, different than the Nixon Trump administration? Was, I'm just, I remember nattering nabobs right. of negativism, you know, which was a well, great I was about term. to say, Trump, I thought the point about Trump doing it in the 90s is really interesting. The difference now is he has tens of millions of people who, ha- who, who are inclined to believe it when he says it. Uh, and I think the difference between the Nixon administration and now is, is of course, the Internet and specifically social media, which adds a layer of t- to all of this. Uh, I'm finding myself uh, sometimes getting in a, into a cab or walking into a building uh, being said, oh, CNN, fake news. Uh, the other half of the time, though, people are saying, oh, CNN, why does the president pick on CNN? CNN's the best. It's, it's created a dividing line. And, uh, and I think that's true for other news outlets as well, the New York Times and others that he is focused on. Uh, it's created this dividing line in the culture that's not healthy for the, for the democracy, that you're either with a news outlet or against it. I want to turn this next question to Kara because I don't think um, anyone is quite as well sourced in Silicon Valley as mm-hmm. Kara here. Um, and I'm not just saying that because she's sitting across me right from right now staring me down. <laughs> uh, and, but Kara, what responsibility do you think that social media companies, companies like Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and Google have when it comes to the distribution of information that is just blatantly false at this point. Well, as you know, I've been super vocal on this issue. I've talked about it a lot. I, I, I scared a, four, a poor Facebook executive at a conference in Germany, and then he went back and said, Kara scared me, essentially. Um, I think they're ab- completely abrogating their responsibility. I think they have huge responsibility. They have nearly wrecked a lot of media, the media business and, and from a financial point of view, and they aren't taking up the responsibility they have as media companies. They don't want to call themselves media companies. They like to prefer to call themselves platforms or pipes. They're dumb pipes or we're just a platform. And I think they are absolutely responsible for what happens and what occurs on their site. And Brian, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think they just – they are willfully – they're not ignorant. They, internally, there's all kinds of debates going on. Externally, they're pretending like it's, it's – that, that they have only partial responsibility. I think they have huge responsibility. Do you think we should be giving Facebook some credit for how far it's come in the past year? I say that because I remember in the summer I asked about filter bubbles. These executives essentially said they have no responsibility whatsoever to ever pop a person's bubble and show them something they disagree with. And now at least they're trying to put warning labels on BS stories. Well, this is typical of Facebook. They do everything super. Remember, you don't remember Beacon, but that took forever to just say this sucks. I was with someone no, this morning. No, I remember who, Beacon. Yeah, 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 I was with someone this morning who worked there a long time ago, and they were <laughs> like, "Ugh, we actually knew it was a problem before we launched it. And everyone just shut it down. And we kept saying it's going to be a problem. And this is a typical, just Facebook walks things very slowly mm-hmm. forward. And, you know, interestingly, Google can just get rid of the fake news instantly. You don't even know they're doing it because they just tweak their algorithm. And who knows what they're up to back there at Google, at the Googleplex. I think the f- problem Facebook has is that they've they promised their readers and abil- their users an ability to do anything they want on their platforms. And so that's like, go ahead, throw poop on the wall. But really, you can't throw poop on the wall, right? So mm-hmm. like, they don't, haven't made the rules necessary to do something. And in the case of Twitter, they've allowed it to become a screamscape. It's just as they, they, ne- they didn't do anything about bullying. They didn't do anything about anonymous. They didn't do anything about they, – they never 
it's just a screamscape. And but at never... what point do these companies, if they start to get a little bit more stringent about the, uh, I guess, the distribution of information on their sites, at what point do they cross that line into censorship? It's not censorship. That's the typical thing. You know what? We have a city. You can't run screaming naked down the street. You just can't. Sorry. Like, that's that's our little rules. I think there are rules that is not censorship. I think they have built, they go on and on about these being online communities. If they're cities and this is the city, they want to run a city, they better run the city and they better not let it create the, a situation. They just abrogate responsibility and then suck up all the money. And so at some point, I think they really do have to understand they have a role in this, uh, in, in civic society. And so I get that. I get their argument about that's that's where they these libertarians go with this. Oh, everyone should be able to do what they want. What you don't know, for example, you know, everyone should be able to click on what they want. Everyone should be able to be addicted, you know, to to watch as much Google News or whatever they want. They, what they don't tell you is that there's a thousand Google engineers, a thousand Facebook engineers manipulating you every single day. So they they this libertarian stuff is crap. It's just crap. It, they, they literally want you to be engaged on those platforms because their business is all about advertising. Advertising and engagement are their goals and whatever it takes is whatever it takes. And I do think inside the companies, there are people that really care and worry about this. I just think they, to pretend otherwise is just, they're just lying. I mean, in the current environment, the way things are going currently, it's hard to imagine a company like Twitter actually taking these steps that people have been asking for, allowing for the removal of, you know, abusive tweets or abusive accounts entirely right. coming from, you know, figures of authority that have been maybe ab well, abusing now the now they have broken glass all um, over the floor. I mean, earlier today, there a report emerged that uh, Fox News removed one of its tweets at the request of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau about, uh, it was regarding the shooting that happened recently at a mosque in Canada. Um, Fox News had apparently tweeted something like, one of the early suspects is Moroccan. Uh, Justin Trudeau said that is absolutely incorrect. He sent a strongly worded letter to them asking them to remove the tweet. They did remove the tweet. And that's something that you could argue is completely false. But it's hard to imagine Twitter having done that on its own. Right. 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 Well, what do you think, Brian? I, I don't know. I feel well, like... Well, I, I thought the Fox thing was a sideshow, to be honest. You know, Trudeau did it for political points. He scored political points. But Fox was not the only news outlet to report that one of the two suspects in that attack was of Moroccan origin. Then it turned out he was just a witness. Uh, and the Fox suite came under a lot of scrutiny because it came from Fox. I, I had two thoughts about this. Number one, Twitter still needs to come up with a way to correct and amend and annotate and let people know when something's wrong. But but they know that's a problem. They've been slow to address it. My bigger concern here is that uh, whether Fox deletes a tweet or not, or whether Twitter lets you annotate it or not, uh, millions and millions and millions of people wanted to believe uh, that that man was a Moroccan origin and was a suspect. And they wanted to continue to believe it even after the facts came out. How do we reach those folks? And can social networks help us do that? Or are they going to always be part of the problem? I mean, this is the this is the huge billion dollar question that I have no answer to. Well, a lot of people wanted to believe the world was flat. So and that sort of changed over time. You know, what I mean, this is the problem. Um, but how do you as a reporter convince the audience that, you know, hey, look, these are clear, provable real life facts. You did that. I saw you do that with quite a lot of uh, strength, actually. It was in very stern way. You said it about the facts around the inaugural, for example, and what uh, what uh, that ridiculous press conference that imbecile did. Um, right. Anyway, you were like, this was wrong. This was wrong. This was wrong. And, it, you right. know, I was like, yay, but like, does anyone listen to you? Could, talk about that, like what you did there. I, I find myself asking the same questions and, and wanting uh, help from academia, frankly, to, to know what, what are the right ways to correct the misinformation. Uh, you called Sean Spicer an imbecile, not I, but, but I would say that Sean Spicer in that 
that in that first uh, statement on Saturday, the day two of the Trump administration, you know, he said five false things in five minutes. And uh, I can say that on television, look into the lens and say it as directly as I can. But I'm not sure that's the best way to persuade folks that, that we are right and that he was wrong in that case. Uh, I'm not sure the best way to show the work and confirm that it's true. And, and here's another example. A week later, uh, Sp- or a few days later, Spicer said that, yes, the president does believe three to five million people illegally voted. I said on television afterwards, this is crazy. It's crazy to think that three to five million people illegally voted. And again, I wrestle with, is that the right way? Is that the right communication method in order to convey to the audience that we're, we're well beyond norms here? We're, we're several miles outside town in terms of in terms of what's normal and, and what, what are facts. Uh, or by saying it so bluntly, am I actually turning people off? And so what would I guess you I'm say admitting nicely? here, I don't know the answer. What do you yeah. think the answer is? I mean, there's no other way to say this is a lie, but this well, is Well, I like bluntness. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate when the anchors on other channels and on CNN are very blunt about it and take the side of the truth which is the, the, hopefully the side of the viewers, take the side of the facts. Uh, that's my personal preference, but I find myself wondering about alternatives. Maybe part of the answer is instead of saying Donald Trump falsely said X, Y, and Z, we have to start up by saying X is X, Y is Y, Z is Z. Today, Donald Trump falsely said otherwise. I wonder, in other words, if we have to reframe the coverage so that we're not just reinforcing uh, the misinformation that we're hearing right, from, from right. any repeating person in the power. error. Actually, in journalism, you don't repeat the error when you make a correction. I don't know if you know that. It's right, like, right. It's, you know, it, when you make a correction, you don't repeat it like you don't. Which How is has it changed the way you report, Kara? Hmm? Do you feel even in reporting on technology? And now you've been covering lately I'm a the intersection in my... of tech yeah, and policy right now. I've, so. I, mean, I feel you have to call them out and in very using the same tactics they use, you know, except truthful. You know, I think I think Brian's got a duty as this, an anchor not to have an opinion, but I have an opinion and I voice it. And so, you know, I probably would be bad for television, Brian, because I would just go, you crazy or something like that. Like you lie, <laughs> like lie. Like when they say something, I go lie, 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 lie. You know, like if Kellyanne Conway had her every time she'd go, I go lie. Like I'd start screaming and stuff. So, well, isn't that interesting? What? How do you interview someone on television when you're expecting them to say false things, or or how do you carry a press conference live if you have good reason to believe that there's going to be misinformation? Is the right? And this is where I think we haven't seen enough innovation and creativity in news coverage in the well, past. Well, someone few months. asked me what I would ask Donald Trump if I got him on stage. It's never going to happen. And my first question would be: You seem to lie a lot. Can you talk about that? Let's talk about it. And like yesterday, you know, I tried to ask the more direct questions, I guess, like yesterday I interviewed Sheryl Sandberg and I said, you didn't post about the the Women's March. People were very critical. What happened? Like, I just wanted to know like what occurred rather than like tisk tisker for it. I, you know, you can have your opinion whether she should have. I thought a lot of people and I did, too, thought she's a woman leader and probably should have weighed in. And, and she then did quite a bit on a bunch of other things. Um, but I just asked her directly. And I, what, what I think happens with someone like Kellyanne Conway, who's like, just like, I don't know what she's something else, but is that you all let her talk and you let her go on and switch the topic. And we've had that problem with people. I had an interview with Carly Fiorina once where I asked her about problems of, of innovation at HP and she answered a whole nother question, right? She answered, she had a different answer than the question I asked. And I let her go on for maybe two or three sentences. And then I said, can I stop you? Because you're, you're answering a different question. And I asked you a different one. So answer the question I asked. And then she did it again. And I said, it's fascinating that you won't answer the question I asked and you've got to stop. Like, and it was so disturbing to her to be stopped. I think that worked very well. I, I think what's interesting from my perspective, and I'm still primarily 
reporting about consumer technology is there are a lot of meta conversations I've been having lately with people about what the role of journalism is in general. I mean, I remember I was headed off to the Consumer Electronics Show um, last month, which is this big annual event. For those not familiar, it's basically the Super Bowl of gadgets. And it's really big for a tech reporter to go to. And someone said to me, well, I guess you have to go and support the industry you cover, right? And I said, hmm. Actually, we don't go to support who we cover. We go to report on what we cover. And there's a big difference. We're going and we're going in with a critical eye. We're telling people if there are gadgets out there that are junk or there are health products that are making claims and they're not FDA approved and they're not doing what they say they're supposed to do. If battery life sucks, I mean, we go in there. If the show itself is maybe a little bit lackluster, we go in and we report on things critically. And I think in general, and I'm, I'm sort of I'm talking about tech, of course, but even political reporting, there is this confusion. I think where people think, well, you're supposed to support or promote your government. And that is absolutely not yeah. the role of journalists. I think, well, I'm, I'm going the opposite direction. I, I think you see that, Brian. I mean, I, I think we have yeah, influenced people to speak out in the tech industry. If I, calling them sheeple yeah. perhaps wasn't very kind, but I think it moved them to understand what was going on. But in general, I think there's just this, there's a little bit of confusion going on right now as to what the role of the media actually is. And it is to call truth to power. It is not to just go in there and be stenographers and type down what these people say and not question it. And you know what? When there are people in power, whether it's the head of a corporation or the head of a government or just the head of your local community that impacts the way you live every day, you want journalists calling truth to power. Right. Uh, Already we're seeing a more adversarial approach is being embraced by, by many parts of the audience. Yes, there are. Uh, there's a segment of the population uh, that, that believes that the main news outlets are fake news. That's what Trump has told them. But there's a big proportion of the audience uh, that, that appreciates this more adversarial approach. And it's because of the volume of misstatements and confusion. I, I think you know, we have to have the caveat here that people in power tend to fib or exaggerate or spin. It's just that Trump makes them look like amateurs. And I wonder, what's the innovation around this? Is it, is it that you hit pause on the screen during a press conference, go and correct the record and then hit play and show the rest live? Is it that you uh, maybe shouldn't be doing live interviews with these people? You should be taping them and editing them? Uh, Should you be annotating the text uh, in a transcript as the Washington Post has been doing? There's a lot of room here for creative approaches to journalism. Well, you you didn't cover one thing. It was great. I thought it was great that you didn't, which was interesting one of the press conferences. So talk about the long-term. Oh, that's right. The the first Spicer one on CNN. Right. right, Absolutely. Good. Too bad. Suck the oxygen from him. Um, What are the long-term dangers of fake news? You know, there's some data from Stanford uh, Graduate School of Education that spent a year studying how 7,800 students across 12 states interpret the news, and it was dismal. Many high school students could not tell real and fake news apart on Facebook. Most accepted photographs for what they were without verifying them. Or looking for professional attribution. Now we've seen that on Jaywalk. You know that's like it, as comical as that is. It's depressing. So it's so this is again nothing new of people being ignorant and willfully ignorant. But how do you think the impact is given how many outlets people have now to, to distribute their information, and so it becomes a, you know a noisy place. Number one, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, And we should expect these uh, fictional sites and these hoax sites to get more sophisticated, more creative, uh, using some of our own tools against us. Uh, I think we're going to see more video versions of fake news, fake videos, fake eyewitness accounts and things like that, which makes the media world even more confusing. And I think that's ultimately the, the concern is that. Uh, folks get so confused by the news or what looks like news that they just check out, that they don't bother believing any of it or verifying any of it, uh, and that we're all these both fictional sites and the recodes and CNNs of the world are all part of this morass that the folks don't know uh, whether to believe or not. Uh, that kind of confusion benefits people in power. 
whether whether they're Democrat or Republican or whatever. It benefits people um, when when there's confusion like that about sourcing. So that's that's my worry about where this is going. Uh, the one good thing about the past few months is that there's a lot more awareness now of this problem in the industry and in academia. There's at least a lot more understanding of what has been a long long term problem that has become worse lately. I'm I'm glad there's more awareness of it and even people talking about what to call it. But I don't see solution. I don't see many very strong solutions out there necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, one of the other things, you know, you wonder if it ever is going to go away. We had some, this is from a story in Politico. In the 1800s, fake news was back again, swirling around the question of race, like Jewish blood libel, American racial sentiments and fears were powerful in producing false stories. One persistent cottage industry of fake news in antebellum America were the stories of African Americans spontaneously turning white. I mean, if that's not fake news. I mean, that's not fake news. And then also from that same article in Politico, which I recommend people reading, uh, they note how sensationalism is always sold well during the Gilded Age, yellow journalism flourished. People were using fake interviews, fake experts, bogus stories. In fact, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World Mm. published exaggerated crime dramas to sell papers. And that, once again, is from Politico. So just to underscore that this is not a new – the fake news – News problem is not a new problem. It's How many just times can I say amplified, Brian. It is, it is amplified, and social networks certainly are playing a role in that. But also, at the end of the day, it comes down in part to it's the responsibility of the news consumer to try to uh, parse through some of that. And we're going to address that in a moment. There are times where there's a fake news story out there, uh, completely made up, and we know it's not true, and we don't show the audience why we know. And that, that's why I'm glad Facebook, at least, is doing this partnership with news outlets to try to fact check. Again, Facebook is only addressing the worst of the worst in small ways and not doing enough, but uh, they are try- basically newsrooms are being empowered to at least show folks why we know some of this stuff is not true. Right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it's it's an upward battle in this, and it's been forever, and it just makes it worse with <laughs> social media. In a minute, we're going to answer some questions from readers about fake news. But first, we're going to take a quick break as Lauren reads from a word from our sponsor. Many Can words. I get that cha-ching sound again? Cha-ching. Right, you do cha-ching. it so well. Sorry, Brian. I have to say cha-ching. That's how bad we've gotten. <laughs> cha-ching. <laughs> All right. She's also dancing right now. You can't see it. Uh, today's show is brought to you by HostGator. If you're ready to take your website to the next level, whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. Uh, there's also a filter that identifies fake news on your great-looking website. Just kidding. It doesn't have that. But if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners get 60% off. Just go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator.com slash Recode to get your 60% off. All right, then. Cha-ching. Okay, so you've been listening uh, to the show, and you know how it works. Every week, we take tech questions from our readers and listeners, and we try to answer everything we can. Brian's going to do it this time. You can send them in, by the way, tweeting to us at hashtag TooEmbarrassed, or you can email at TooEmbarrassed at Recode.net. This week, we're answering your question about the phenomenon of fake news. Lauren, read the first question for Brian to answer. First question is from at Beccanalia on Twitter, who asked, hi. Why are you continuing to use the euphemism, quote unquote, fake news instead of calling rhetoric what it is? Disinformation that she abbreviated here slash prop, which I'm taking to mean propaganda. Now, initially, I honestly didn't know if she meant that the false news we're seeing out there is the disinformation or if she was referring to us as news producers as putting out what she calls disinformation. But Brian, I guess why are we continuing to use the euphemism fake news? Is it just is it toothpaste out of the tube at this point? 
I agree that it is, and I'm trying to wean myself off of the phrase and come up with something different. Uh, maybe hoaxes is, is is a better word, but you know, fake news does that term at least in it to insiders who study this does capture a specific phenomenon. Uh, it's not a perfect term though, and I think if we could rewind the tape six months, maybe made up news or fiction or or not to have the word news in the term at all would help because there's no such thing as actual fake news. It's a contradiction in thought, and it doesn't help the president is using it now. Like on everything, anything he doesn't like. Oh, quite frequently. Yeah. He just used it the other day. He was giving a speech about Black History Month and he kind of deviated, went off topic, talked about uh, an erroneous report that was made earlier about the Martin Luther King bust disappearing from the White House. And he, he just kind of went off this tangent and said fake news. Again, fake news. It happens quite a bit. Oh, I was trying not to talk about the president's use of the term. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, I, I, we, we should expect that to continue. I, uh, the folks that I talk to, the, the journalists who are, are covering the administration day by day, you know, I think uh, the, the general view is he went harder at the media earlier than would have been expected. Yes, he was going to campaign against the press the way he did during his election campaign, but uh, he, on day one and day two, started this immediately, this attempt to continue to tear down the press. Well, I don't know why you'd think he wouldn't. There's an expression by uh, Maya Angelou, when, mm. someone introduce, when someone shows themselves to you for the first time, believe them. You know, that's what he said what he's going to do. So there he goes. Okay, next question is from Anshul Kapoor. Why don't Facebook, Google, and others collaborate to make a fake site database and collaborate? Brian, why, why don't they do something like that? Is there, is there a way to do that? Do you think that's sent the, the censorship word goes up? I don't think the censorship word goes up, uh, but but clearly Google and Facebook have both said they're going to try to attack these ad networks. Uh, I don't know, actually, if there is collaboration going on. Maybe there is and we don't know it uh, in terms of some sort of record of, of these sites. No, they can't these decide on do... what to have for lunch together, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say these sites shift their shapes every, you know, from time to time. New ones pop up every day. It is a real whack-a-mole problem and probably would benefit from some sort of maybe third party trying to keep tabs on all of them. So do you think it's their duty? I mean, talk about the censorship thing again, because it does come up. That's the first thing that comes up or, you know, slippery slope. That's always a favorite, you know, this idea. Is it a slippery I suppose slope? Facebook allows you to post whatever you want. You described it as poop up against the wall earlier. Uh, I don't see, I mean, do, we, do any of the three of us see Facebook deviating from that? I, I sure don't. Yeah, I do. I think they're going to, I think they're going to, it's when it starts to hurt their business. When Snapchat becomes a more pleasant place to be, Snapchat verifies publishers, right? Why couldn't they verify publishers? I think when Snapchat becomes more popular and an easier place to live in, and Facebook, the beautiful suburb of Facebook suddenly has trash and broken glass and becomes, moves towards, you know, the land of Twitter, which, as we all know, is really problematic. I think they'll start to do something about or it. Or even just remember MySpace, what happened with MySpace. Of course, the fake news, I don't think it was the real issue then, but all of the spam. ads and the spam and the terrible content that just started popping up and it became a very unplace for people to sort of be online. Uh, and the quality, you know, the quality suffered uh, a great deal. And well, that's an interesting point about the comments on Facebook. Also, I don't know about your all's I've Facebook suddenly walls. Gotten Mine looks like a cultural civil war, yeah. and mm -hmm. yeah. it's not a pleasant place to be. Uh, I don't want to spend the time moderating it or deleting comments that it would require. But uh, I do wonder if the company can do more to try to. I don't know, uh, not delete the comments, not remove them, but maybe not put it in my face so much. Maybe try to move the more pleasant ones to the top or not pleasant, but the more the more thoughtful comments to the top. Well, they want to they don't want to limit it. Someone else on Facebook in the early days, they when they had the X thing on your newsfeed where you get rid of people initially, they, they didn't want to have the X thing 
get removed from your friends' feeds, which was interesting. I mean, when, well, it would lower engagement too. Because yes, because you're just seeing less stuff. Exactly, and but with they less. let you x stuff, but then it still stayed in your friends' feed. So what's the difference? And their implication was they were supposed to help you clean up your feed, and they really weren't. And so it's a really interesting issue. Is they the problem is their business is about advertising and engagement, and when that's the case, you know we're in you know Brian we're in the network days, right? The movie network. I think it's really you know you know Sybil the soothsayer, and this is interesting and. I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. It just feels like that. And mm-hmm. I, I think they are waking up to their responsibility and Google has an easier time than Facebook. But when you see Snapchat becoming you know, increasingly popular, it's beca- that's because of that because you can control your environment and make it pleasant at least or somewhat pleasant or, or useful. All right. Uh, next question, Lauren. Next question is from Jonathan Madden uh, at not John Madden on Twitter. And I think his tweet was actually in response to the earlier question. But do you trust any company to always be selfless in deciding real versus fake with the authority to discredit info? Well, Brian, go ahead, Brian, besides you. No, I was hoping you would take that first. No, go ahead. It's all yours. <laughs> Don't fight over it. <laughs> to expect them to be selfless? Play that out. What does that imply? So if a company like Google, Facebook, and others uh, do sort of collaborate or even just individually start to take more steps to try to monitor and remove blatantly false news and news sites, then do you trust a company to be selfless in, in deciding that? And I or think we kind of already value. answered that in the sense that if, as long as they're advertising-driven platforms, then likely no. And do we get to the place where a story that's highly critical of Facebook is considered fake news by Facebook, right? I mean, they've said that they're working with these third parties, uh, the International Fact-Checking Consortium and Pointer, in order to, to be removed from the process. My gut always tells me this is about more than the social networking companies themselves, that publishers have a big role to play trying to fight back these lies with the truth. And I know that's not a very satisfying answer, definitely not an algorithmic answer. But I keep coming back to the idea that these fake sites are going to become more sophisticated, uh, more insidious, and algorithms alone won't solve it. Uh, it's also a media literacy problem, by the way. I, it's a dorky term to use, but we should mention it. Uh, there are not many media literacy classes in this country. There are not many students being taught media literacy. Uh, but but I know Facebook's interested in funding some of that. Uh, surely Google as well. I wonder if that's a little bit of the solution here also, helping people understand the di- or, or be able to root out the difference between a, a credible source and a, and a crazy source in the same way that three, the three of us try to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that maybe there's this misconception, you know, oh, my, you know, my elderly aunt can't tell the difference between this website, which is real, and this le- website, which is illegitimate. But then as that Stanford study showed, they were talking to high school students yeah. who were looking at, let's say, an image of a flower that uh, the image, you know, purportedly was an image of a flower impacted by Fukushima, and it was all distorted and weird and everything. And high school students couldn't tell that that was a fake. Yeah. photo. They weren't looking at attribution. They yeah. weren't looking at the source. They were looking for photographer credit. So this is something that's impacting, you know, future generations that are going to be, or in the case of Snapchat, are becoming like some of the biggest media consumers. Uh, and so I think media literacy is going to be increasingly yeah. important. Absolutely. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is You know, strength. you're talking about the high school students. You know, by the way, I've never read 1984. You got to. now is the time. Let me tell you, you know, it's number things. one again. Yeah, it's best selling. Brian, 1984 and The Art of the Deal. You'll understand it perfectly. The Art of the Deal I have read, and that was very helpful. Wasn't it? It's the same thing. It was. Yeah, he's a I was just going to say about those high school students, what would a social network look like that was fenced in, for lack of a better, or walled in, that only provided credible sourcing? 
I mean, what would that, I, I don't even know how to go about creating that, but I wonder what it would look like. Uh, because there are so many news consumers that are so overwhelmed by this, that, that are so frustrated by the pollution that they, they see online, these fake made-up sites. I wonder what a, what a site or a, an app would look like that was designed to, uh, I mean, I guess safe space is a, bad, is a, is a loaded phrase these mm-hmm. days, but mm-hmm. I wonder what it would look like to have a, a version of a site that promised you uh, only uh, reality-based information and not that alternative reality. Yeah. So I have two responses know. to that. And my first is, Brian, Silicon Valley will definitely fund you if you pitch that because they'll fund almost anything. <laughs> and second, um, I think that op- I mean, you just go down such a rabbit hole when you start talking about that because you're talking about, um, first of all, you use the word credible, right? Right now, we're sort of, the mainstream media is essentially under assault and people trying to say, well, even the mainstream media is no longer credible, which we, of course, being mainstream news producers don't feel or don't believe. But then you get into this question of, okay, then what actually becomes a credible source? And mm-hmm. two, that's not all, that's also not addressing partisanship because there are a lot of credible news sources out there that are, just have these partisan slants. And so, you know, if you were to show if there was an entirely like a Walden news site, maybe aimed at younger news consumers that came from credible sources, you'd have to address those two questions as well. You'd want to include conservative and liberal Absolutely. outlets, mm-hmm. yep. but are there ways to weed out true nonsense? And and I, I, don't, I don't know the answer, but uh uh, it does feel like there'd be a market for it because I, what I what I sense in my inbox, maybe your all's inboxes are similar. People feeling starved or not nourished by the news, want, wanting to know what the heck to trust. If it bums me out when I get emails from readers saying, "Look at this link for me. Can you tell me this is real?" Because I don't necessarily always have the, the chance to go and find out for them. Uh, I wonder what that kind of site would look like. Yeah, it would be hard. You'd probably be attacked by trolls. So last question is from Dan Wyman at Dan Wyman. Uh, what tactics can we use to help fight fake news? How to best uh, help someone understand it's fake, like just what you're talking about? And also, Brian, what's the toll? I mean, I don't want to feel sorry for you as a journalist, but, you know, we're all getting pilloried. But what do you do? Do you turn it off? Do you? I, I answer everybody. I love engaging with them. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I see what do you, it. You, I know. <laughs> yeah, give, your, give your like your top three takeaways first for how someone can spot yeah. really fake news. And then I, I also want to hear about how you kind of, uh, you know, tune out when you need to. Well, these sites are oftentimes too good to be true, too um, too sensational to be true. Uh, so partly it's about that uh, own gut check. Uh, if, if you're if you're inclined to believe it, you should be more more skeptical. Uh, I think we've all fallen for for these fictional stories at one point or another. I certainly have. Others have. Learn from those moments. It would would be another it would be another piece. You know, uh, take away those lessons. And and third. You know, there's a reason why the CNNs and the Recodes and the New York Times and the NBCs work so hard to uh, try to hold on to their credibility and correct the record when it's wrong. It's because they're at least in the business of trying to tell real information and tell the truth. Uh, so to the extent that you can rely on them, rely on these brands, I would say that. And, uh, you, you know, Kara, I, uh, I'm not replying as often as you are anymore. Is, is part of the answer. Uh, I am, and maybe that's because uh, Trump news is keeping me busy, but uh, I try not to, to uh, pick fights on, on Twitter. More importantly, the quality filter is, is been, has been very useful. Uh, I, there are days where I want to see everything. I want to see all the feedback. And then there are days where I do not. Just from uh, friends and, or something. And yeah, and having having those filters makes a big difference. I'm actually so impressed by the quality of the Twitter quality filter in terms of how much it weeds out in terms of hate mail and abuse. 
Um, I find that trolls create, you know, fake images and they write on my face and things like that, some of which can be amusing, but most of which can be frustrating. And I found Twitter to be responsive uh, to those issues. But I realize being a public figure on Twitter is different than being uh, a user who who may have, you know, 3,000 followers and who is interested in engaging and then gets attacked. Uh, and, and clearly Twitter is not doing enough on, on that front. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, One of the things... I find it's interesting. I block a lot of people. I do. I just block, block, block. I spend a lot of time blocking people, especially the egg people. And it's always the egg people. Or if they're cogent, I get in an argument with them. And if they're cogent and civic, I, I don't mind like having a civic argument with them. Um, but one thing that I tend to do is also realize that I get a lot of positive ones too. Like I think sometimes nobody in the press wants to whine. I don't really care if people attack. I don't really care. It doesn't doesn't it doesn't seem to get to me as it gets to other people. But one of the things that I do think about is that instead of just focusing on the negative, I get just as many positive ones, if not more. And so that's what I I'm, that's what I realize is that you're just going to have to take it. Um, Absolutely. As I don't thing. sleep and, over and, and you know nasty yeah. tweets. Or and anything. the other thing just is also belong. just not making mistakes. That's the problem. You know, you talked about the the. <laughs> Bust. Um, you just don't make. You cannot make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You, you have to try really hard to correct errors almost immediately when you make errors. And errors are what a lot of these things are that Trump and others have called fake news. No, it's just an error. We made an error, and it's very rare. But when you correct them and say so rather quickly, I think that's what's. Um, that's how you, yeah you maintain trust yeah. with your with your audience Absolutely. as well. How do you I mean? You said yesterday, Kara, that you feel like you go to take a shower now and you come out and something terrible has happened in the news. I know I personally, I've been ordering a lot of physical books lately Uh because, and they just keep stacking up because I'm like, well, if I'm holding a physical book and I'm actually taking the time for, you know, to read for 30 to 60 minutes a night or whatever it is, I'm not on Twitter and I'm not using a Kindle that's connected to the internet. I'm just like, I have to put my mind somewhere else for a while. How do you actually, you and both of you and Brian, how do you actually like, are you you stepping away? Brian doesn't shower anymore. (laughs) Brian doesn't shower anymore. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> She'll love that. If I, if I can reiterate your point about the positivity, um, I find myself thinking about that also, that, that uh, there is hate and abuse online and it can be very loud. Uh, but then I look at other metrics, which are, you know, this sounds arrogant, but web traffic and TV ratings and the, the piles of emails in my inbox. And I'm reminded that there are vast numbers of people that want what we're doing right now. Uh, whether it's your coverage of of the Trump meeting the tech world and what that dance is like, whether it's coverage of his attacks on the press, people are are hungry for this stuff. And the the haters, uh, if I can use that phrase, uh, they they are so loud and and so vocal, but but so small compared to all the audience the readers that want our our content. And to answer your question about what I'm doing, uh, I'm going to the movies. Yeah, I want to be in a dark room where I have to With turn La La my phone Land. off. They're and dancing. No matter, yeah, no matter what happens in those two hours, I'm not going to be interrupted. Yeah. Because the, otherwise there's that reaction to the, the, the Twitter story of the hour that can become disorienting right. and can distract me from the stories I would like to go work on on my own, in my, on my own agenda. Set my own news agenda as opposed to have yes. it be set by others. And I agree with that. So uh, dark room, watching movies. I have ordered a bunch of books, like you were saying, Lauren. Um, I maybe haven't read as, as many of them as I'd like yet, but I have a pile going of books about history because I want to learn. I want to be able to look back and, and see the parallels between uh, history and, and today. They're very uh, clear. With regards to press freedom and things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Brian, and Brian, let me just say it's it's uh, wonderful that you have that kind of attention span. Right. And yeah. I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. Well, I have just one last question. <laughs> when you get attacked like this with the amplification of Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and let's be clear, ampli- noise is different than real impact, right? So you can be, you can feel under threat when you're really not because it's just screamy. 
Do you feel that this president using Twitter, using these attacks, using social media, and then the, the ensuing pile-on that happens is going to really damage an outfit like CNN or not? They don't attack Recode like they attack you guys, but do, are you truly worried about it? Do you feel your bosses are worried about it? Uh, let me take the long view and say that these big news brands in this country have outlasted many presidents and will outlast President Trump. Uh, do I think his attacks can can damage a news brand? No, I think they can change a brand uh, and affect the perception of a, of a brand. And I think we see that at the New York Times. Hosts on Fox now say, oh, and the failing New York Times said, literally as if they are Donald Trump, they've adopted his language on, on Fox and Friends. I notice that sometimes. Uh, does that change the brand of the New York Times? It probably does a little bit. Um, but I don't think it'll it'll damage the brand of the Times going forward. That's Listen, let's ask me in three months. Let's see where we are with three or six more months of his daily insults. But I see journalists trying to rise above it and trying not to be put on the defensive. We're not at war with him. We're we're at war against uh, people making up facts. We're at war against people who are lying, but not at war with any individual person or administration. You know, I think you're going to like it, the no access. It's great. I have to tell you, it worked real well with Yahoo with me. Didn't matter. <laughs> we did a great job. I felt better. It's just don't worry about it. It puts you in the position where you need to be, which is exactly what you're saying, is doing great reporting and trying your best to, to, to do the, the best job you can. And to inform our audiences. Right. That is our goal. Anyway, we're big fans, With Brian. the truth, yes. And now we're going to get you. the Trumpkins all over us for saying that. But too bad, Trumpkins. <laughs> we love Brian. Too bad. Hey, we're, we, we want everybody to be reading and watching, no matter who they voted yeah, for. Yeah, come on, come uh, on uh, down and call us assholes, please. Um, okay, this has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, it's been great to have you on, Brian. Thanks again. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to our show, and you can leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first person to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. If you're not on iTunes, you can also subscribe on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Um, like we're everywhere here. Lauren will come to your house. Yeah, I'll just read it aloud to you. Endlessly. I'll read you a bedtime story, but it'll be the Too Embarrassed <laughs> podcast. You can also just go to our website, recode.net slash podcast, which despite the fact that it has a .net extension, is a very real news website. Indeed. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. The Verge also has some great podcasts for your listening pleasure. Walt Mossberg and Neelai Patel host Control, Walt Delete. Neelai also hosts The Verge and don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Rico with a hashtag too embarrassed or email them to us at too embarrassed at Rico.net. Thank you for listening to this uh, very interesting and lengthy episode of Too Embarrassed. Likely Thank controversial. Yes. Yeah. Thank you also to Digital Media, the company that distributes the show. We'll be back next week, of course, to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask us. So tune in then. 